This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Welcome to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Linus Wilson. On this episode, you'll hear from Jennifer Appel about her sailing background before she was rescued by the U.S. Navy approximately 900 miles off of Japan. This episode is brought to you in part by the Fluid Plus Form 4K Action Camera. It's a Wi-Fi enabled and smart app camera with a 2.4 gigabyte remote control and long lasting batteries. You definitely will want to check it out if you're thinking about doing underwater photography on your boat and definitely take a look at it on Amazon.com if you are thinking of buying a much more expensive GoPro. On the YouTube channel, we have a video about how to make a sailing video that doesn't stink, and you get to see the Fluid Plus Form Eagle 4K action camera on that video. Okay, so what I'm trying to do with this interview with Jennifer Appel is to really get an idea of her sailing background and how she decided to to go on the big trip to Tahiti that didn't end so well. And I don't think anybody before who's owned a sailboat, who's done any sailboat cruising, uh, has interviewed her up to this point. And I think that that has really made the story that has come out seem really crazy to cruising sailors because nobody with any cruising experience has, has uh, interviewed her to my knowledge. And so what I tried to ask her in this interview was the things that I ask all the guests of the Slow Boat Sailing podcast. That is, where have you cruised? What have you done to modify your boat? What kind of boat do you have? And, you know, what? why did you choose your present boat? Why do you like it? So those are the pretty common questions on this uh, podcast and, and most other uh, podcasts that are about sailboat cruising that we want to know about people's experiences, owning their boats, fixing up their boats, where they've cruised. And, you know, I think Ms. Appel has some very interesting answers. This podcast is in part brought to you by the Sail Timer Wind Instrument. It's a wireless solar-powered masthead anemometer. There are no wires to install down the mast. It's the first anemometer designed for sailboats with wind cup blades that maintain equal accuracy when sailing along heeled over. It's submersible, so it works great on sailing dinghies. It does not require 12-volt wiring. It is NMEA network compatible, and there are apps that you can use with your smartphone. You get $5 off on the Sail Timer Wind Instrument at www.sailtimerwind.com slash slowboatsailing and give it to your favorite sailor as a Christmas gift. Ms. Appel here for the first time confirms that her boat is a Morgan 45 designed Starrett and Jinx hull. And, you know, one of the frustrating things I think about this story for everyone is that Ms. Appel repeatedly called her boat a 50 foot boat. And then the Coast Guard document was wrong. 
you know, uh, Sailing Illustrated did a great job of journalism to, to contact one of the previous owners who confirmed it was a Morgan 45, but this is the first time that Ms. Appel has admitted what kind of boat it actually is. Okay, here's the interview uh, with Jennifer Appel, and Tasha Fuyava is in the background there, but she really doesn't come on the discussion. All right, I can see you now. Ah, thank you very much. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? How was your holiday? It was peaceful and quiet. You guys are, where are you guys at that it's so cold? New York. Oh, New York. Okay. Cool. Uh, how do you like New York? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's New York. <laughs> are you in, in the city? Are you in the upstate in Long Island or what? Long Island. So I told you what my first question would be. Uh, I don't know if you got that email, but uh, it would, I just wanted to ask you about how you started sailing. Oh, well, I started sailing probably because it was the best sleep I'd ever had. It seemed logical to take my home from place to place. It, it was a different world than skydiving or racing motorcycles or being in architecture on land. What did you start sailing on? It was a friend's boat? Were you at a yacht club or did you have your own oh, boat? Well, in Hawaii, you can go out sailing every Friday. They have uh, Friday night races from the Alawai, and they have the Wednesday races from Keihi. So you can do either of them, and it gives you a chance to get a taste of what things are like from the racing world. So if you really like getting yelled at, and you can spend <laughs> three or four hours uh, of your life to go around either the Diamond Head buoy or around the lagoon on the other side and then come back in for a pitcher of rum and coke for the winter, then time well spent before the fireworks start. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's that's the, uh, the best way to learn, I think. Everybody recommends that. But... No, I, I actually don't recommend the getting yelled at part, yeah. but <laughs> under, understanding that... You know, on, on a 30-foot or 40-foot boat, you, you can, you're going to need 10 people with their legs out over one side in order to weight the boat and have, you know, two or three people trading off being the sheet man and only the captain at the wheel. But it's, it's a different perspective than I think most people get when they go out for, say, a booze cruise. We used to do Wednesday and Sundays every week uh, from different locations, different marinas, and your Wednesday cruise was a day cruise that went out and you, you went and you saw the dolphins and then you'd anchor down and have lunch and nap and go snorkel and then come back in. Sundays was a, a much bigger, more wild ride. It was much more of a booze cruise experience. And same kind of things, no dolphins, generally more whales because we'd go out to the channel and it was for people that wanted to, wanted to scream because they thought they were gonna fall off the boat. <laughs> okay. Uh, did you, was there a particular crew that you liked to, that, that you... I've loved every crew that I've ever worked with except one. So you crewed on a lot of different boats? A bunch of different boats. So you weren't on a, like, a, there wasn't like one boat that you were with for a long time? 
Well, over a period of 10 years, uh, I wouldn't say that there wasn't one. It was just from one to another. And yeah, people I, go we're, in we're and We're not out. like the Hatfields and McCoys. Um, from where I, I sit, I can jump on a bunch of different boats. It's, it's yeah. not like you can only go to the left or only go to the right. All right. So what kind of boats did you crew on? What, what? Sloops. Sloops, cats. Uh, uh, for people who don't know sailing, that would be a, a monohull with one main and one jib, uh, schooners with up to six sails, and and uh, cats, you know, that's multi-hulls, uh, mm -hmm. trimarans, multi-hulls. So uh, I was thinking more like J30 or Hunter <laughs> oh, 45, <laughs> not, not slooper. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I think the smallest was a Hershoff, and that was under 20 feet, and the largest is uh, over 65 feet. Okay. Uh, all right. So you you did a, you've done a lot of racing, you say. So well, I wouldn't call it racing. I'd call it getting yelled at and yeah. a lot of cruising. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, you've done more racing than I have. I think I was only on. I've only been on one round the buoy race ever. You're an experienced racer compared to me. Well, uh, remember, Hawaii is a place where people retire to. So we've had everybody from Moitessier and his son, who still lives there. We have uh, John F. McGrady, who did Sailing the Dream. He lived there. You've got some of the best sailors in the entire world come there because it's the most remote place on Earth, and it has three of the world's five most dangerous channels in it. Okay. Yeah, I think it's not an easy uh, sailing ground uh, to start out with. There's no ICW there or anything. No protected waters. When when did you get your first boat? 2007. What kind of boat was it? It was a Coronado. Oh. Uh, a precursor to Catalina. Catalina bought them. Right. So it was a precursor to the Catalinas. Uh, how big was it? 34. Did you sail on that? Did you live on it? Did what? Uh, what did you do with your Coronado? I didn't live on it in the beginning, but once I realized how how quiet and nice it was, I and mean, when you're in a landlocked place like Hawaii, you will find that you, if you are on land, you might learn all sorts of things that you didn't probably want to know about your neighbors because you can hear them. <laughs> and on a boat. <laughs> You're, you're much less susceptible to finding out things that you didn't really want to know in the first place because there's actually distance between you and the next guy. Okay, all right. <laughs> and then, okay, you know, if your neighbor's throwing pots and pans overboard, you can just uh, leave, go out for the night. So uh, did you have a slip that you lived in, or did you, like, uh, did you Back anchor then? a lot, or what? Slip. Sometimes it's kind of close in the marina, but a lot of boats are kind of not, there's not many people that are on them. That people don't visit their boats a lot, so you can have some more privacy. Like you, <laughs> how often do you spend on your boat? Two months a year. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's in it's uh, on the other side of the world, so I, I only have two months that I can cruise. So. Oh, where is it? It's in Tahiti. So you understand what that's like down there. If uh, you were telling me to, about Tahiti, what would you tell me? I think French Polynesia is wonderful. I, I love French Polynesia. <laughs> I, you know, I think the Society Islands are not so bad in terms of navigation. The Tumotos are a little harder. Um, 
the Marquesas are beautiful. They're just uh, raw and beautiful, and not there's not a ton of people. Um, I'm really excited that we're going to see more of the societies next time around. So yes, I would say definitely you want to visit. You want to stay. <laughs> Get a long stay visa. <laughs> that, and actually, that's interesting because from the the people in Hawaii who have made the trip that I talked to, and then there are many, not just one or two, but um, they say, oh, you you want to. You don't. You want to go to Tahiti, but you don't want to actually stop there. If you need ref to replenish your fruits and vegetables, go ahead, but don't don't spend any time there. Go to Morea, and you'll like that. But only spend a week there, and then go to Papeete for a couple days, and then just start cruising the islands, because you'll have. For me and the person that I am, I would have more fun looking at them from you know, a, a nautical mile away than I would going to an island. And I've actually traveled about three quarters of the globe from the land perspective. And, you know, you and I both know when you go to islands, after a while, it's, it's an island. And the things that make it different are nature. I mean, people, people can be good and people can be bad, but what's, what's really interesting is seeing the sunrises and sunsets and the reef and the flora and the fauna. And I don't need to do those things by having a slip and going up and down the, the gangway to, to meet other people. All right, so you had the Coronado. Uh, where did you cruise in the Coronado? I stayed pretty much near shore there. I learned very quickly that a, a boat under, the, under 40 feet is not the optimum thing to take into the Pilolo or the Chiave. Oh, I don't know what the Pilolo and the Chiave are. So those are it's, channels around Oahu? Yeah, between Oahu and Maui. Okay. Molokai. Uh, when you look at a map, you're, you're crossing, we'll just call it the channel between Oahu and Molokai. Um, that place, you can go, you can look out in the morning at 6 o'clock and go, this is the day to go to Maui. You've got perfect trade winds, the water's flat, and you can get halfway across it. I can tell you that I've made the trip to Maui in nine hours, and I've made the exact same trip to Maui, and it took 27 hours. And, it, and the mornings when I started, those trips were identical. It's just the condition has changed so rapidly out there that you honestly don't know what you're going to get halfway through. The winds, they, they come from the east, I would guess, would be the trade winds. I don't know. I've, yep. I've never cruised in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, we got Honolulu, okay, and then Maui is, what direction is Maui? It's east. Maui is east, okay. So that'd be kind of hard to go upwind to Maui if you're just sailing. Yeah, but you, you have to make that trip if you want to go to Maui. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't change. No, there is no time in the year where the, there, everything changes and you're like, wow, uh, Kona winds would happen. I, which might make it easier because it's more of a downwind, but I'll be straight honest with you. I've never seen downwind to Maui ever in my life. Uh, what is this? Kalahiao? On there? I like that. We'll stick with your, your pronunciation. Or Kappa. I know. I, I'm terrible with pronunciation, and it's, it's just I, as bad worry, as French Polynesia. Have you ever gone to the, the downwind islands, or you just only went to Maui and... You mean like Kauai or Niau or any of the 130 plus French frigate shoals? 
Because there's actually a lot of islands in Hawaii. It's just that only eight are ever classified as Hawaiian islands. Oh, no, yeah, I was thinking of the big ones. Like, uh, I see Ni Hao. So, no. <laughs> uh, let's just go with the easy pronunciations. We have Big Island. And between Big Island and Maui, you'll have the Alanui Haha. And uh, Molokini is there. It's one of two. Uh, volcanoes that sunk, so they're actual craters in the world where you can drop in, but uh, Molokini is only eight feet deep, so it's a little problem for me. It's great for the guys who have cats and want to do day trips to snorkel. From there, you got Maui, uh, which would be on the north-hand side, and if you were facing west, that would be north or your right-hand side. On the south side, you have Koalabe. And that is a military island. It is uninhabited. Uh, there's still unexploded ordinances on that island. Beside that, going west, is Lanai. Uh, Lanai has a small boat harbor that doesn't take boats in it that are over 30 feet. It has a wonderful snorkeling area outside of its six to seven foot deep channel. And then there's White Manele, which is about 20 feet deep, that uh, is where you would find the Four Seasons Resort. There's a black manila there, which only takes in the, the ships that bring cargo on Wednesdays. Uh, back up to the north of there, because when you're on Lanai, it was called the prison island for a reason. When they were having the fights with King Kamehameha, the fights would take place on Lanai. And you could sit on Maui, incidentally, at one of Oprah's properties, up at the Heiau, and look and watch the people over on Lanai. Uh, Lanai was also used during World War II as the internment camp for all the Japanese that lived there. And then over to the west of that, sort of north, is Molokai. It is a long island. From there, you would go to Oahu. And from Oahu, at the proper time of the year, you would pass Kayana Point with its amazing wind shear and go to Kauai. There is a race every year that goes from Oahu to Kauai. And then from there, Niihau is a private island, so no one goes there unless you have permission. Ah, okay. Did you ever visit Hilo in the Coronado? No. No. Okay. Did you leave Honolulu in the Coronado? Yeah. Okay. Uh, or or uh, or Oahu. Did you leave Oahu? Yeah, I did my first. I, I tried my first thirty days circling Oahu without touching land to see if I would ever be able to be a solo sailor because oh, I was really interested in what happened uh, a voyage for Mad Men with Peter Nichols and I wanted to know if those nine people if I had what they had you know can you go away from land and yet I didn't really want to get so far that I couldn't see with larger boats once I got used to crossing the channels I, I was so ecstatic to, to be in a place where I could look back and wouldn't see anything but water. And it took years to get to that point. It wasn't like an immediate thing. It was like skydiving, where the first time I went out of a plane, I absolutely loved it and couldn't wait to go back again the second day, the same time in the same day. You did 30 days without touching land. Did you, did you anchor? Back in 2007, 2008, 2011, yeah. Okay, so you, you kind of like anchored in spots in Oahu, but you just never got off your boat. Okay. Yeah, right. you would do the same thing that we would do when we took people out on a Wednesday or a Sunday. I mean, you go out, it's just that instead of coming back at sunset at the end of the day, I just stayed out all night. And it's really neat to, to, to see the island from the ocean's perspective. 
instead of seeing the ocean from the island's perspective. Okay, so you just like had a lot of food and had a lot of water. Mm, I believe in water makers. I, I think Katerdyne makes a really awesome 40 gallon an hour water maker. <laughs> there's, there's nothing like a hot shower, hon. Okay, so you got. We have them on land. <laughs> so you got a Katerdyne power survivor on your boat. I've uh, always had them. Okay, you have two of them. You said you said you had two on your trip. That one of them broke down and then. Correct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because, you know, being out there in, like, for you now, if you're in Tahiti, if they're, and you're going to the Solomon Islands, and one breaks, you might want to have a second one, and there's not really any West Marine that you're going to go waltzing into while you get there that's going to have one right in stock so that you can install it. That makes sense. I think spares are good. You, do you ever use the hand pump, or you always use the uh, electrical? I always use the electrical. Okay. That's kind of cool, and you, you, and uh, it worked out pretty well for you. I have, I have a, I had, uh, I still have it. I have a pure power survivor forty, and it's it almost seemed to work at one point, but it never did. Send it, it back. Away. Tater Dine's awesome about that stuff. I mean, <laughs> still under warranty. You get what two years of warranty with the thing. And get the three-year extras kit. I mean, it's really not as hard to rebuild one as, as they might make it seem, but it, it's, it looks yeah. like a camshaft. Or it's just got all the same. Yeah, I think it's out of warranty. I've spent like, I don't know, $600 in spare parts or something that I'm just going to have to eat. But I'm glad it worked out for you. And a lot of people really like their water makers. Typically, I think people go for the bigger ones, but Power Survivor's good. Especially if you don't have like a big generator or anything. So you sailed the Coronado for about five years, is that right? Well, yeah, because I didn't have it after 2012. So what happened in, in 2012? What happened with the Coronado? Do you want to talk about that or not? No, that would be like... Okay. That was, a, that was a tough lesson to learn. Everybody else does not love you as much as you love yourself. And I know that because the other person who had the helm, went home and sat on his couch and had a beer, and I went to my empty slip and cried. That's well, the end think, of what we're going to talk about there. I think it would be pretty awful to lose your home and to lose your boat, right? That was, yes. Yes. <laughs> I think anybody can emphasize with that. That sounds pretty bad, like a tough experience. Did you have another boat after the Coronado? Yes. Yes, it is the reason why we are talking now. Okay, so the Sea Nymph was your second boat. So how did you uh, find the Sea Nymph? Why did, you, why did you find that boat? Why did you pick that boat? I wanted a blue water boat. The first boat I ended up uh, learning a lot from when, when I was chopping up what was left of the bits and pieces of it to put into trash bags to throw into the dumpster, I learned that I learned a lot about how hulls were built, and it was a very eye-opening experience. Uh, the time that I spent being on other boats between the first boat and my second boat, I learned even more about flex and things that can happen when, let's say you're out in a channel and it's flat, and within an hour you've got 14-foot seas, and suddenly that exact same boat moving at the same speed has a very has very different feel characteristics to it and there was a time at one point where i was was making a crossing and and the person i was with i, I think i would have 
passed out at the size of the waves that were, were happening. But because the boat was so big, I felt completely comfortable. And, and then I said, you know, when you're on a small boat, little waves seem really big. But when you're on a big boat, big waves don't seem so big. So it helped me to understand what I would feel comfortable with on a long passage. Because I had never never thought about just having a boat as a weekend experience like so many people I know. And I've always been interested in exploring places that I've never been in. It's the road less traveled. Okay, so you, you wanted a, a sturdier boat than your previous boat as your next boat. Linus, if I could have had a 90-foot boat and thought I could handle it by myself, I would have gotten one of those. Okay, <laughs> all right. So you think bigger is better, safer, and so that's how you felt. That's, a lot of people feel like that. It's my choice. But the CNIF in particular, or the Tracy Ann, uh, how did you find it? When did you buy it? When did you uh, get it? I think you pulled the record on that. I got it in January of 2015. I have no records on that. <laughs> Oh, Coast Guard. <laughs> That's when we changed the name. Okay. Okay, so you bought it in January of 2015. Do you mind talking about how much you paid for it? I don't think that's important to most people. I know how much effort I put into it, making changes so that that boat, I mean, over a two-year period and four different haul-outs, I wanted that Morgan 45 that was a 46 that I had to pay for 50 feet of LOA for. I wanted that boat to feel like a bigger boat when it was in the ocean. Well, the record on it says it's a Stratson Jinx, and you, so Stratson Jinx 45 is like the Star Morgan 45. Starrett and Jinx is like the Morgan 45, and you had a Starrett and Jinx 45. Is that right? That's what the Sea Nymph is. Yeah, I, I checked in with Charlie on that. I mean, the man is a genius. You have to recognize that he, back back in the 70s and 80s, when he was looking at cruisers and racers, this is the only blue water boat in the world that is designed to roll on its LOA and ride the side. Most, most regular boats don't heal more than 35 degrees. This thing, we buried the ball on it in order to put the rail in the water. That was phenomenal. And it, it handles completely differently on its side than it does straight up. I mean, you think about a Pearson. A Pearson works, does the best that it can when it is completely balanced and it is up in the water. Whereas the Morgan, it, it doesn't do that. It is a slow-ass heavy boat, which is a, a weight displacement boat when it is sitting upright. But it actually moves when you turn it on its LOA. That makes sense because it has big overhangs, so it's going to have a longer water line. No, it's line a thinner length. boat. It's only 10-8 wide. It is extremely thin for its length, and yes. it's flat on the sides. It's not rounded like all the others. But it's, um, Benito's it's, got a rounded, rounded hull section, more of a more on the line of the wine glass, whereas the Morgan on the front, the whole front is is a V bottom. And it doesn't wine glass until the back end. And the other Morgans that you'll find pictures of, if you look underneath the boat, they don't have the additional pieces that I have on mine in order to make it more like a double ender. I mean, most Morgans don't even have the full keel. And I have way more than just a full keel. But that is by my design and not by someone else's. 
Okay, we'll get back to that in a second. Uh, I, I th think what I was trying to say is that the bow of the boat, right? There's got a, I used to have a, an older boat the, from 1969. It had big overhangs. Mm -hmm. And part of that is designed for the racing that you get, you have better upwind performance with the big overhangs because effectively when you're heeled over, your waterline length increases and your speed is a function of your water, your maximum speed is a function of your waterline length. So you're saying that the Starat and Jinx 45 you had, it performed better heeled over than it did flat downwind. Mm, not downwind. There was very little downwinding we do. On a downwind, you're going to be majorly flat up because you're using the spinnaker. I mean, down, just take the word downwind out of your sentence. Uh, or beam reaching. <laughs> not heeled over. Mm, um, I think we're saying the same thing. It, oh, you're right. All boats go faster using their LOA instead of their waterline length. Um, and but that boat was actually designed to especially on upwind like going back from the cooks back towards hawaii that, there is nothing downwind about that at all at all that makes sense uh, uh, it's it's, it's kind of upwind to tahiti right well from, if you do it Honolulu. correctly you go from oahu to south point big island and from there you go east for a straight week so that you can catch the the current that will take you from California to the Marquesas, and from the Marquesas you drop into Tahiti just as if you were coming from anywhere on the west coast of America. You, okay. you're, we're not flying a plane. You don't go straight down from Hawaii to Tahiti. You're, you're going to miss it, which is part of what those storms did to us because we left too late. Okay. And so what kind of modifications did you make uh, to the, the Morgan 45 hull, and also just what kind of upgrades did you make uh, to the C-Nymph so that you could go on your big trip? Well, uh, Morgans are famously notorious for having paper-thin sidewalls. They really are. Uh, that was one of the big drawbacks that people had with Charlie's designs in the early 80s. And the C-Nymph is vastly stiffer than a boat with a 3 8 inch hull. So, in fact, we needed uh, bolts that were longer than four and a half inches to put the new tangs backing plates on for the outside rigging and still make it through the, the hull as I had reinforced it. it took okay. years to okay. do it. Okay, <laughs> so you put a lot more fiberglass on the side of the boat? So you, uh, like on inside the inside and outside. Okay. And did you extend the keel? Well, or you just you just put more fiberglass on the side of the boat. Some of it, definitely on the side, and at the bottom it was a bit not enough. When I took a tape measure out it haul out and put it where the waterline actually is and dropped it all the way to the bottom, the tape measure dropped down to eight foot six. Now, I have been told by other people that the keel is six six. So the draft 
that I know it to be, say, in Lahaina Harbor, which is only eight foot deep, if I tried to go in there to get fuel at any time other than exactly high tide and come out at high tide, my draft allows that boat to get stuck in the mud in the middle of the channel. So you, you can, without going into exactly what we did, there's a video uh, that I probably, if I haven't put it up on YouTube, I will. And it's of me swimming the bottom of the hull itself. It's kind of funny to me because that water is that so green when people think that water in a harbor is blue compared to the har- the water from the end of the trip when we were out in the ocean. But you can actually see how it's what I have done pointed the bottom of the hull. It's not nearly as rounded as other people's were. I would gather that there are going to be some people who don't agree with what I did, but for me and and what I like when I'm sailing, it worked very well. Okay, so you said when you drop a tape measure it, from the deck, is that it? Drop a tape measure from the deck? It's no, eight, from the water line. From the water line, you say it's eight foot six. Yeah, for the draft. But, you know, I mean, you just we just look up sailboat data and it says that the draft is like six for that boat. So... You're saying that you put another two and a half feet on the No, the I'm keel? saying that it, that my boat, the draft of my boat, will not let me get through an eight-foot harbor without getting stuck in the mud if it's not high tide. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, it's possible, for instance, um, in the harbor where we kept our current boat, um, the first time I visited it, I had a four-and-a-half-foot boat, my previous boat, and in terms of a keel depth, and, or how deep the keel was under the water. Uh, and, and we ran aground, but then it got dredged, and now the dredged to seven feet, and we haven't run aground since. So it's possible maybe there was shoaling at some point, and it needed to get dredged. But, but you're saying you didn't make any modifications. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I think out, out in the ocean, it doesn't matter if you have an eight and a half foot keel or a six foot keel. Or a four-foot keel. Oh, I and, think and, it, I, I hear your point, but really what we're speaking <laughs> to is the draft and not the keel. The keel did have modifications because it doesn't, the, the video, the GoPro, doesn't look anything, I shouldn't say anything, it looks like all other full keels, but it is significantly different than the other Morgan blanks that they sold. Because the start, Jenks was not a production boat. It was a blank. They okay. sent you a bottom half and a top half, and you put it together, and you decided what you wanted it to do and how you wanted it to perform. Okay. So there are no two Morgan Starr Jenks that are alike okay. on this planet. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Oh, and I know one other thing. When people say, how did you modify it, you could pull the keel boats right out of that boat, and you're never going to lose the keel. I attached the entire thing. It's all one giant piece. In fact, you can't even pop the rudder post anymore. It's one piece. I, I guess, um, you know, my reaction to, to a lot of hull modifications on a, it, it's an old boat, right? It's from 1979 yeah. or something, would be that, you know, if you don't like the boat, if you're willing to make a, you can afford to make a lot of hull modifications, you can just get, buy the boat that you do like and not make hull modifications. I, um, you are correct. Uh, I, I know from several yard haul-out facilities that you never ever make modifications to the hull of a boat 
because they have been designed by the naval architect to perform a specific way. So while I, I love the Beneteau 51 that they're now pushing, my favorite boats are all custom boats. None of them are production boats. And so the things that I have looked at, you know, having inside my boat as amenities don't even exist on a production boat. So did you do most of the fiberglass work yourself or did you pay somebody to do that or what? Oh, I did 100% of it myself. Okay, all right. So you just had to pay the, the storage fees essentially and the cost of the fiberglass. And the $800 in paint every time I wanted to repaint it. Right, okay, all and right. It takes four gallons to get around that boat four times. Plus the, the two gallon, the gallon and a half of primer that goes on before it because paint doesn't stick to paint, paint sticks to primer. And we know the gel coat lasts longer when you paint it because otherwise it gets thin and bubbly and that's what causes all of the blisters. Okay, all right, that, I don't, I don't do any fiberglass work. I don't have the patience for it, but uh, more power to you to doing that, you know, great learning experience and- uh, The labor of love. Yeah, so- You have children, I have dogs and boats. Okay. <laughs> You also, so you you mentioned you, you, you changed the weight of the boat and the, the hull, so then you also wanted to modify the rig a little bit. So how did you modify the rig? I hired a rigger. I hired an expert to do their job. Okay, and so the, the mast is still the same height, is that? The mast is, a, is only 57 feet. Okay. And that, Some people who have Morgans have taller masts. I don't. I have a shorter mast. Okay. So you didn't change the mast, you just changed the rigging the, for the... So no, we pulled put, the mast out, rechecked the keel step, I redid that, uh, put on mast steps, put it back together, added a different set of lights packaged to it so that I could light up four different areas of the boat at the same time, uh, put on a new antenna, new Furuno, uh, radar equipment, new radios, bigger GPS. Okay. You know, everything that you need to basically rebuild an entire old boat. I talked to Greg Cutson of Mantis Anchors about why weight in the tip of the Mantis Anchor is so important. The main issue I perceived with Anchors was not really ultimate holding power. The reason they failed was because they never really properly set first place. So very rarely, 25 knots, you're overpowering a well-set anchor. We wanted to create something that guarantees you a universal set. As a cruiser, when you go around, you find unique locations that are really hard to get an anchor to bite. And we solve that problem. Go to mantisanchors.com to order yours for a better night's sleep. Mantis is a corporate sponsor of the Slow Boat Sailing podcast and YouTube channel. So I want to give a shout out to the winner of the Patreon drawing, Russell, who is, I think, excited about joining the Slow Boat crew in 2018, probably in May. I got to talk to him yesterday and that was really cool. And it's my hope that we will have a patron of the podcast and the YouTube channel, Slow Boat Sailing Podcast and Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, every summer as we do our part-time around-the-world voyage. Philippe and Darren, two other patrons, are waiting in the wings. 
uh, if they're, the vacancy is not filled by Russell. And I'm super excited. We're going to have a patron on the slow boat in the South Pacific this summer. Patrons get great rewards like bonus episodes and audiobooks. In the bonus episode to this, I talk more about the gear on board the SVC Nymph and their travels. And one thing that comes out of that, and I'll link to the blog that talks about it in, in more detail in the show notes, is that Ms. Appel left Hawaii bound for Tahiti without any large-scale harbor or island charts for the islands that she was going to visit on the way. So a lot of the things that I talk about in the videos and the prior podcast, episode 41, I think this is this helps explain part of the story why she couldn't stop at Christmas Island. I think Matt Lauer really kind of grilled her on this. Why didn't she stop in other parts of Honolulu? Although she did have charts. She said she had charts for the Hawaiian Islands uh, that she had electronic charts she could zoom in on and, and get the depths. But Christmas Island, she said she didn't have charts. For the Northern Cooks, she said she didn't have charts. For Wake Island, which slow boat sailing confirmed with the U.S. Air Force that she did pass by there, that uh, she also did not have charts, but she could have anchored had she had charts in all those cases. We spoke for over an hour. Uh, we were delayed by technical issues, you know, her signing on Skype and stuff like that, which is pretty common. Uh, so it's my hope that when we have a bit more time, we can touch base again and talk about her big trip where she left for Hawaii bound for Tahiti in more detail and maybe about some other things about her boat that are unanswered questions. You know, I think the Coast Guard Honolulu has been unnecessarily tight-lipped about what they know and what they don't know. I have several Freedom of Information Act requests outstanding with them about aspects of the story that they have not revealed to the public. I did not feel any reason to rehash the, the aspects of the story that I talk about in episode 41 that we can verify from independent sources like people who study sharks or meteorologists with NOAA. You know, I think those are settled issues, but I think there's a lot of unsettled issues. And I think Part of uh, what this interview brings out is that their boat was unprepared, at least in terms of charts. I think there's evidence just from Ms. Appel's statements that they were unprepared in terms of understanding the electronics and communication gear on board. And that comes out more in the bonus interview for patrons only. I will say that, you know, I don't agree with a lot of the commenters on Facebook and YouTube that it's obvious that there's some book deal in mind for Ms. Appel at the end of the rainbow. I think that she has experience uh, with being an author and she knows uh, how little that pays. I also believe what she said on her second interview on the Today Show uh, that time with Matt Lauer that she was not responsible for the media picking up on the story. 
uh, the U.S. Navy was responsible for that. And I totally agree with that assessment that without the U.S. Navy's pictures and videos and press releases, that this story would have not gotten the, the traction with TV news in the way that it did. Okay, so I'd like to close this episode uh, remembering uh, our dog daily. If you're a reader of my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas or Slow Boat to Cuba, daily was on that the boat for every mile of those big trips in those books. Uh, he was on the boat for every mile of season one of Slow Boat Sailing. You can see him on the YouTube channel. And, uh, you know, with great sadness, uh, he passed between episode 41 and episode 42. Uh, we thought he had several good years. And, you know, I just regret that we did not uh, catch the signs of his problems sooner and we did not know uh, CPR, uh, doggy CPR, when he died in my wife's arms. Uh, but he had a wonderful life. He, in terms of the, the sea miles on the slow boat, he was second to me in the sea miles on the slow boat. He had 6,500 nautical miles. He visited the Bahamas, Florida Keys, Panama, Providencia, Ecuador, the Marquesas, and Tahiti, and uh, he will be sorely missed. Uh, we are so joyed to have a new toy poodle uh, join our family, join our pack, uh, join our crew, uh, and his name is Avery. And you can see him on the, the, the video uh, that has cut on the, the thumbnail, and you can also see Daly in that video. Um, Daly was with us for 11 years. I said when I started this podcast that I wanted to do something like was done by Podcast Away, where they had audio logs of the big voyage. And, you know, Podcast Away did its last episode, was episode 40. We passed that milestone. Podcast Away between its 39th and 40th episode, it, uh, they lost their cat. And their boat was called Dos Gatos. It was a catamaran, but they also had a cat as a pet. And they sold the, the cat. But we've, we're not selling our boat. And we're going to go on with the podcasts. And we're so joyed to have uh, the puppy Avery uh, lighten up our lives. Until next time, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com. This podcast episode and all prior podcast episodes and all videos and pictures produced by Slow Boat Sailing are copyrighted material and should not be used without the express written permission of Linus Wilson. You can email me at linuswilson at yahoo.com.